Well, it is good to be here, despite the fact that I really tried to not come initially. Um, if you don't know anything about me, I'm from Colorado. Um, I did spend the last six years doing my PhD in Ontario. Alberta is definitely better. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're from Ontario. <laughs> but Alberta and Colorado have lots of similarities for which I'm really thankful, one of which is the beautiful bright sunshine. Um, yes. And uh, I am, I am really, really happy to be here. I'm so thankful that God led me here and gave me this job. And if I'm lucky enough to have you in Torah class this term, I'm having so much fun. Probably more fun than you because I don't have to do the homework. But um, <clears throat> hopefully, hopefully you're at least having some fun. Uh, so last week, um, Mark started us off with this, this question of what in the world did Jesus say to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus when he explained about himself and the significance of his life and his death and his resurrection from the law of Moses, the prophets, and, and the Psalms, or the, the, the writings. And so in those three categories, uh, he covers, the whole, he covers the whole Old Testament as we know it today. And so we know that the whole Old Testament looks, look, looks toward and speaks about and gives us, gives us the worldview vision for being able to understand who Jesus is, who we are, and why he and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension are the best news that this world could ever receive. And so... Mark has started us off asking, well, what would Jesus then have said? If we go back to the beginning and we trace our way through the Old Testament, what would he have said to explain about himself? Um, and so we are going back to the beginning um, and we're gonna trace our way through. So again, if I'm lucky enough to have you in Torah class, um, then this will be some review for you. Um, doesn't mean you can go to sleep though, please because uh, we're going to you know, go different directions than we have in class. Um, but we're going to focus this morning on what it means to be the image of God and what, it meant, uh, for, and what it means for Christ to be the image and likeness of God. And so this is all about identity, identity questions. So if you're from North America, um, we have this standard set of questions that we ask each other, right? And if, especially the standard set of questions when you come and you're first new at school. So you can probably list them off if you're new here and you're so sick and tired of answering the questions. Hi, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your major? What year are you, right? And you, you have gotten all used to answering these questions. These are identity questions. We're trying to sort out who you are in relation to me, and do I want to be your friend, and are you older than me, are you younger than me, do we have things in common, do we not have things in common, do I maybe want to pursue a friendship with you, or am I like, eh, yeah, nice to meet you, see you later, I don't want to be friends with you, like, we're identity questions, we're sorting out who we are in relation to each other. Um, of course, if you're from other cultures, not North America, we, you, they sometimes ask different questions like, how old are you? Uh, who are your parents? How much money do you make? How much do you weigh? Yes, we would all, as North Americans, find these fairly offensive, but in other cultures, they are trying to accomplish the same, the same 
function of who am I in relation to you and who are you in relation to me and how are we going to potentially fit together and work together as human beings who have now encountered each other. So identity is all about us, but of course we come to know ourselves in relation to other people, hence the questions, right? Hence the questions of who are you and then who am I in relation. Um, we hear a lot these days about identity politics or stolen identities, about searching for my identity or expressing my true identity. I'm sure you can think of context in which this identity language comes up. It's really significant. Knowing who we are and how we identify ourselves is really important. And for good reason, because if you misidentify something, there's some serious problems. So I was thinking about this, what, heaven forbid, I am misidentified as a Canadian and I can't get home to America, right? I don't have my passport currently, it's being renewed, it's all very, feels very nerve-wracking to not have your passport when you're not in your home country. Uh, what if I'm misidentified as one of my sisters? My sisters and I all look a lot alike. What if I'm misidentified as one of them and then I'm mistaken as the wife of one of my brother-in-laws? That would be bad. Um, I mean, I love my brother-in-laws, but I'm not their wife. Um, what, and this happens, right? What if I'm misidentified as someone else who committed a serious crime and I'm the one who goes to jail and suffers when I didn't do it because I'm misidentified? And, and this, is, this holds true for every area of life. What happens if doctors misidentify an illness? That's bad. My, one of my nephews, when he was 14, um, had a tumble when he was sledding, and a few days later had this incredible, horrible pain in his side. Well, the first doctor uh, diagnosed it as like an internal blood bleed hematoma. Guess what it actually was? A massive kidney tumor. Big problem, right? Good thing they went and got a second opinion. He's fine, doing well, all recovered from his kidney cancer, minus the one kidney and the tumor. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we're eternally grateful for the doctors who correctly identified Thomas's cancer. Because now he's, I don't know, I can't remember how old all of my nephews and nieces are. He's like 23 or something. Um, wonderful human being. Um, so identification is really important. We hope that scientists identify correctly species and cells and atoms and stars and galaxies and energy waves, and we hope that they're identifying these things correctly. We identify types of literature, based, and based on how we identify them, they convey certain meaning. So a newspaper article is different from a poem, which is different from a novel, which is different from a blog post, right? Identity, correct identification, it's a big deal kind of makes or breaks, are we going to go down the road of more problems and misinterpretation and getting ourselves into a big kind of mess? Or are we going to correctly identify and make good choices based off of that correct identification? So too then with humans identifying ourselves. And in North American culture, there's all kinds of language around choosing our own identity. Um, but if we misidentify ourselves, then we will also misidentify our problems. And if we misidentify our problems, we will misidentify the solution. Same thing with Thomas. 
had they diagnosed that as a hematoma and had done the medical protocol for that, he would not have gotten better. He would have probably gotten worse because they didn't do surgery to get rid of the tumor and chemo and radiation, right? Correct identification of ourselves is really important for us to have life and wholeness and well-being. And knowing our true identity gives us meaning and purpose and direction and a sense of stability, a sense of value, a sense of dignity, knowing our true identity. And of course, misidentification, again, it comes with serious consequences for us. If we misidentify ourselves, we experience feelings of being lost and confused, being hopeless and full of despair, feelings of fear and anxiety because you don't know who you are and you're lost, right? But God has not left us abandoned to stumble around grasping for our true identity. He has told us who we are. Thanks be to God. So, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So if we choose to take the words of scripture, we know who we are. We are image bearers of God. But of course, then the question is, is what does this mean? I'm not sure the explanation that you've been given, but these are some of the things that I've come across um, growing up in church, being in Christian circles. I've heard a lot of people say that to be in the image of God, um, we image God in our rationality. That we, unlike animals, have this capacity for reason and logic and abstract thinking. So this is true. But many animals, we are finding out, have a much higher intellectual capacity than we have previously known. And no joke, I shared this with the Torah class the other day, there is a group of people, at least in America, who are, you know, proponents of animal intelligence, and they want to make the claim that animals are people too. And that they should have human rights, people rights. (sighs) They might be very... highly intelligent, uh, we, so, right, then the line becomes a little bit blurry. On the other hand, some people have emphasized that humans image God in our relationality, 
They argue that we, unlike animals, have the capacity for incredibly complex relationships and social structures and language. Again, this is true. But also, again, we are learning that animals have far more, are far more complex in their interactions with one another and communication patterns than previously thought. So if we emphasize human rationality and relationality as the defining capacities that make us image bearers of God, then here's the problem. We're only different from animals by degree. That's a problem. But Genesis indicates that though we share with animals and plants and rocks and stars our creatureliness, all of us are creatures, we are unique in our identity. Not a difference in degree, but unique in our identity. So, what then is the more full understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God? So, if you're in my Torah class, this is review. That's okay. You can explain it to everybody else afterwards who maybe didn't get it. But if you've already had Torah class, I know that Dr. Imes also taught you this to you. So this is wonderful. It's wonderful to be speaking to a, an audience who has um, a framework for some of this. So the whole idea of an image of God or an image of a God is a concept common to the ancient world, common to the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, sometimes it's used of kings. Kings would be called an image of such and such a deity. Um, and he, as kings, they were sort of separate from the, the rest of humanity because in the ancient world, humans were not valuable for themselves. They were only valuable because they were the gods' slaves. The gods who, you know, they needed to eat and they needed to drink and they wanted nice palaces, which are their temples. Um, and goodness sakes, the gods don't want to do that work themselves. So they created their human slaves, their minions, to do all the dirty work that they don't want to do. Kings were sort of this special category, and some, so, sometimes they were called an image of a god. Unlike the rest of the human slaves, right? Also frequently used as sort of the physical idol, the, the physical representation on earth of a deity's power and presence and authority. And this special, specially made, specially ritually washed and cleaned idol image would be set in the temple of its deity and it would be the image of the God. The communication point between the divine realm and the human realm so that the divine realm could make sure that all of their human slaves knew exactly what they wanted. Or maybe mostly Sometimes the humans had to figure it out and then they got it wrong and then the gods just zapped them because they were angry. Because the gods in the ancient world were capricious. They were fickle. They woke up some days and they were hungry for this and then just like us, they wake up some days and they're hungry for that. And boy, if you can't figure that out, then woe to you because the god might just have a little temper tantrum and smite you. No joke. Uh, so this is the world in which this phrase, image of God, is situated and understood. The idol was the direct line of communication to the divine realm. The idol was the representation of the power and authority and presence of that God on earth. And whatever you did to that image, it was as though you were doing it to the deity itself. So when we come to Genesis 1, and it states that God creates humans as his image bearers. This is a revolutionary concept, unique to the ancient world. 
that humans are the physical embodied representation of the power and the presence and the authority of God on earth, that we are in direct lines of communication with the creator God, that we don't have to go through an idol image to communicate with the one creator God. This is what it means to be created in God's image. Yes, we have rationality. Yes, we have a unique level of relationality, but that's because we're image bearers of God, not the other way around. This is what makes us unique. This is why animals are not people too. We're created in God's image to co-rule, to co-steward the beautiful creation that he made under him and with him as his representatives. We get to participate in establishing God's life-giving order and his justice and his harmony and his fruitful stability. This is what we were created to do. And of course, we know that it all went terribly wrong in the garden. When Adam and Eve decide to define good and evil for themselves, when they who were already like God chose to doubt when the serpent said, you can be like God. Well, joke's on them because they were already like God. It's tragic. And if you read the story slowly enough, you see it coming and you're like, no, 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 don't eat the fruit, don't eat the fruit, right? And, it's, and, you, and you, you see yourself sliding down the hill. And you're like, oh no, oh no, ah. No! And so it sets into motion the rest of human history, a battle between truth, capital T, and lies, a choice between joyfully and obediently imaging God or defiantly imaging ourselves. Here's the thing. This turns out to be a choice to image Satan and death. Because we were created to be image bearers, we will image something. The question is what? What will you image? Will you image God or will you image yourself? Which turns out to be an, a representation, a manifestation of the power of death. This is the choice. We are created to be image bearers and we will image something. We don't get to choose our identity, hate to break it to the rest of North America. We don't get to choose our identity. We've been told who we are. We are creatures under the one sovereign creator, and he has told us who we are. Our choice is do we accept that created identity, or do we push back and reject it and say, no thanks, I'll figure it out myself. Well, good luck with that because it's not going to work. You will devolve into confusion and fear and anxiety and hopelessness and despair. You will. That is, that is where that choice takes you. It's where it takes me. So the human rejection of our God-given identity spins us into chaos and disorder. Power struggles abound because in this world of separation from God, we are terrified. And in our fear, we fight to gain power over others. 
The power struggle is also between humans and the rest of the natural world as we struggle to pr produce food and survive in what has become what can be a hostile natural environment. The life and death choice that image bearers must make is captured in Genesis 3.15, God's curse to the serpent. He says, cursed are you above all livestock. You'll crawl in your belly. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This conflict between the image bearers of God and the powers of evil that hate God's image bearers. And the back and forth struggle of us striking the head and him striking our heel, this back and forth struggle between goodness and life and truth and beauty and all that is death and evil and chaos and ugliness. So it's an ominous warning in some ways. Evil will forever seek to destroy God's image bearers. But the hopeful side is that God's image bearers will fight back. Ultimately, in the scheme of God's grand narrative to restore his image bearers, along with all created things, one particular offspring of the woman, one particular image bearer from Eve, who is the mother of all the living, engaged in the final battle between God's image bearers and evil. The back and forth striking of heads and heels finally ends, right? In the decisive blow to the serpent's head when Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the epitome of the image of the invisible God, dies on the cross and rises to life again three days later. The first Adam, the first humanity, rejected their identity as God's image bearers. The new Adam, the new human, obediently and joyfully images God to the fullest in order to reconcile all things, to restore order and goodness and justice and harmony and abundant life in all things. Paul reflects on this in Colossians 1, verses 13 to 23. For he has rescued us, God, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or preeminent one over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why do we hold together? Why do our chairs hold us up? Why can we walk out and know that the Maxwell Center will still be there? Because Jesus holds all things together in good order. And he is the head of the church, the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, and Megan have become a servant. So on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explained about his life, death, and resurrection using all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the writings. And if we are to understand Jesus and the depth of what his life, death, and resurrection mean, then we must understand this foundational truth about our identity as God's image bearers. To misidentify ourselves is to misidentify our problem. Some people want to blame poverty, social inequity. These are war. These are all bad things. But if we say, well, if we just fix the poverty, then everybody will be perfect. No, that's not going to happen because you haven't called the problem sin. You haven't called it rejection of God. You haven't identified those valuable human beings first as image bearers who need restoration of relationship with their creator. We'll be worse off than we were before as problem layers on top of problem, as deception layers on top of deception, as brokenness and pain continually build up, always making the previous brokenness that much worse. So this is what I would call us to do. Embrace with obedience and joy your identity as God's image bearer. Make the choice daily and hourly, if necessary, to represent God, not yourself. To find your life in connection to him, to find your meaning and purpose in his love for you. To find your direction in life from what he asks you to do in partnership with him instead of scrambling around, oh, and now I'm in college and I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and I've got to make my own way and find myself and express myself. There's so much anxiety around this time of life of making your own path and forging your own way. God knows who you are. He's told you who you are. Find your meaning and your purpose and your direction in that. Repent and confess your sin, my sin, of self-sufficiency. We must repent and confess of our desire to choose our own identity for ourselves. We need to repent and confess of our sin of rejecting God's good order and accepting Satan's lies. Repent and confess, for God is abounding in mercy and grace and longs to forgive us. He longs to rescue us from these experiences of death in order to give us abundant life in his son, the perfect image bearer, and through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Thanks be to God for the truth and the beauty and the goodness of his word. Amen.